This is John Halsman, and welcome to the Patrick Henry Podcast. The last one before Christmas, and as we wind up work, though, our, we will, my firm will be hard at it until tomorrow, and we'll try to get you something on that week in between, that fallow week in between New Year and Christmas. I make no promises, but I imagine I can't help but do a podcast. It's sort of addictive. Hope it is for you. It certainly is for me. But I thought we'd take a step back, take a deep breath, and do what historians really ought to do best, which is to, instead of looking at the dots of the pointillist painting, look at what the painting actually signifies, what it's about. And if you were looking at this year in retrospect, I don't think in the end it would be entirely about COVID, despite all the headlines and despite the fact that COVID-19 is indeed the first world historical crisis, political risk crisis of the new century. But I think bigger forces are at work. And the biggest of these forces is that in this last year, we have seen the death of globalization and the rise of great power politics. And globalization has been the sort of governing macroeconomic theme of the world for certainly at least the last 20 years, and I'd argue probably the last 30 years. And while this has been going on, you see the characteristics of globalization being just-in-time manufacturing, where things are made at the absolute last minute, the primacy of economics over politics, we'll get back to that in a minute, and the centrality of the Sino-American link, that the Chinese make things and the Americans buy things, um, and that this was the basis of this new system, which was all about economic rationality. What mattered was that things were as cheap as they possibly could be, and that it was thought that this rationality would rule the world, and for 30 years it did. And there was huge economic growth. You saw the rise of China, but you also saw some negatives here. One was the relative decline of the West along with the rise of China, the dearth of manufacturing opportunities in formerly advanced industrialized countries as we hollowed out our manufacturing base because it was cheaper to import manufacturing from Asia, factory Asia above all else, and geostrategically the rise of a pure competitor, of an enemy, of a rival. And this was all going on at the same time. But implicit in this system of just-in-time manufacturing, of the centrality, of the Sino-American link, of the centrality of economics over politics, economic rationality trumping everything else, uh, there was a political risk bet, and the bet a bet that nobody much talked about or thought about at the myriad conferences I was forced to, en to endure for my sins. There was this implicit argument, not made, but present everywhere. And the argument was, in the end, economic matters will always trump geopolitics, that economic rationality is the order of the day, that having ironically destroyed Marxism in the Cold War with the Soviet Union, um, which is based on economic determinism, that everything at base is economic, many leading capitalists now adopted a Marxian view that economics was the dominant force in the world, rather than just one of many. And I think that's come to a shuddering halt now because the political risk bet was that the U.S. and China, the two poles that kept this whole system going, Chimerica, as it was called by Neil Ferguson and others, that this grouping of these two countries and those around it, the allies around both, would always put its economic interests ahead of its political or geopolitical interests. 
and that although they would compete, although there would certainly be frictions between these two powers, the rising superpower China and the established superpower of the United States, this was all manageable because in the end, they so benefited from this globalized system that their political and geostrategic differences would always come second, could always be managed, and would always take a back seat to this economic rationality and keeping the gravy train going. This is no longer the case. Let's just think with COVID of a couple of examples. People in the West now don't care if pharmaceuticals cost a little bit more than they would otherwise. They care that not all their pharmaceuticals are made in China, the very country that loosed the virus on the rest of the world. So China is now seen by everyone as the bad guy, as certainly, as I've said before, like law and order, they are guilty of manslaughter. Though they didn't cause the virus purposefully, once they knew the virus was going to hit them, Xi Jinping made the calculation, I would much rather take the hit myself and see the rest of the world take it rather than take it alone. And so although Wuhan was locked down, the rest of the world was opened up and this is criminal negligence. And the rest of the world can see this very, very clearly. And as a result of this negligence, China is now seen as far more of the bad guy than it ever has been before. And so this economic bet that was made before, that somehow it's okay, that we can ignore our differences, our geostrategic differences, that they're minor compared to the economic benefits of globalization, well, this doesn't look like such a good bet anymore. And in areas like pharmaceuticals, which we've needed with COVID, people would rather pay a little bit more money to have this onshored, to have countries have their own medical supplies that are not dependent on the very country that caused the virus in the first place. And so economics is not dominant in that consideration. Think about rare earths. Most of the rare earths are mined by China. Before, nobody cared. Almost nobody knew this, but nobody who did know cared because that economically made sense. Now, it horrifies people that the, that the silicon chips in their computers, we'll get to semiconductors in a minute, that, that these were made in China it horrifies everyone. We don't want to be dependent for our future technological growth on our great superpower enemy. And so people would rather pay more to duplicate that experience, to mine their own rare earths, to set that up rather than be dependent on China, whose motivations now look far from good. So again, economics taking a backseat to politics. And then if we look again, yet again, it's semiconductors, most of which are made in Taiwan, which is obviously a fragile state lying between superpowers America and China. We don't want to be dependent for a semiconductor supply of all our future computers on an entity that is being threatened by invasion with China. And if we have to duplicate that, and now some of the Taiwanese chip makers are actually building plants, they're hedging both in China itself, but also in Arizona in the United States, they're duplicating, we're hedging. And suddenly you say, well, that will cost more, but who cares? I need a secure supply politically implicit. So great power politics is back with a vengeance. And the world is now run by things other than just economics. The one global supply chain will continue, as we've said before, but it will continue in a tattered fashion as countries around the world look at what's happening with the rise of great power politics and they hedge. What do they do? They onshore, they duplicate, they do regionalization. Um, so 
you buy within the EU because all those countries are your allies of your Germany and they're democratic and you don't have any political risk. Same argument for NAFTA with the United States. You'd rather buy oil from Mexico than you would from the Middle East, much more stable, next door neighbor. That makes perfect sense. And manufacturing goods with Canada, which couldn't be a lower political risk if there were. A few moose hitting pipelines is about the extent of the political risk with Canada as opposed to dealing with China which is a hornet's nest of difficulty, you're going to spend a little bit more money and not have to worry about the political risk. Again, great power politics trumping uh, economic rationality. And so for all these reasons, you have the return of great power politics and the death of the notion that this one globalized system is the only way forward because the political risk bet made here, the political risk bet that somehow economics trumped Politics and geopolitics is now out the window and makes no sense at all. Um, and for all these specific examples I can give you, you see the total change in mindset. Well, what are the underlying factors we've seen this last year that are political points that we've raised in our prediction column? Well, two leap to mind. The first is the centrality of the Sino-American Cold War. This is not just some little local difficulty. This is now the defining geostrategic uh, matrix by which to view the world. This is the big one. This is the two superpowers increasingly in competition. Fortunately, at the moment, the competition is political and ideological rather than military, though in Cold Wars this can change as over Taiwan. But this is now set in stone. And this is set in stone, as we've said, for three basic reasons. Two are structural and one has to do with China. The structural reasons are that when rising powers run into established powers, they tend to fight wars. This is the Thucydides argument we've talked about, named after the great and first great historian Thucydides, who chronicled uh, the Peloponnesian War, where a rising Athens ran into an established Sparta, and they had a war that led to the death of Greek civilization as we know it. Um, because although the Spartans won that war. In the end, it was a Pyrrhic victory, and both sides were supplanted by the Macedonians. But that's the norm. 12 out of 16 times in modern history, rising powers have run into established powers, and there have been war. Only 4 out of 16 have there not been. And so let's be humble historically as we look at what's happening. Inevitably, these two are going to clash, and quite often historically, this ends in war. The second argument we made before is the peaking power argument. Even worse, even more dangerous, and I've written about this at length along with people like Hal Brands and Michael Beckley, is the idea that when great powers peak out short of achieving their full superpower potential, watch out because war is on the cards. This was true for the Kaiser's Germany, which worried about Russia catching up due to the Stolypin reforms, that Russia would soon outpace it economically. And so the Kaiser had to use his army or lose his army, lose his chance to be a great power, uh, a superpower, and instead just be a great power. And of course, this led to World War One. The same way Imperial Japan went from growing at 6% in the 1920s to only 1% in the 1930s, Roosevelt puts an oil embargo on the Japanese, which very quickly have to either humiliatingly climb down, ending their war of the militarists in China and resulting in the diminution in overall political power of the military caste, or they had to double down and attack either Southeast Asia, the Dutch East Indies, as it was known for resources, or the United States itself. And of course, the result was Pearl Harbor and World War II and a cataclysm 
for the Japanese. Well, she is part of this peaking power. China's going to get old before it gets rich demographically. It's a basket case. There are huge private sector debts um, in the banking sector and the real estate sector, which makes up 30% of China's overall GDP. It isn't Evergrande. It's 19 other Evergrandes that are the problem. So that is a huge problem. And of course, she has scared the horses by being bellicose. And this has united the rest of Asia and the United States and the Anglosphere against it, particularly Japan, India, the United States, and the Anglosphere are in all pretty much in lockstep, seeing China as the aggressor. And this is the last big problem, which leads to the imminence and permanence of this Cold War. Xi Jinping is historically a different guy than Deng Xiaoping, the last great Chinese leader, who had a very different approach to what was going on. For Deng, it was softly, softly. Let's bide our time. Let's grow at six, seven, eight percent while the West, while the U.S. grows at two, Europe at zero, and then we'll revisit all this stuff in 30 years as relatively we continue to gain on the United States and the West. And this worked brilliantly. Xi, much more radical, much more, dare I say it, Maoist, much more dictatorial, much more one-man rule, whereas Deng ruled collegially. Xi rules entirely by himself. The, in, in his nickname in China is he's the chairman of everything. He's the chairman of every committee. And he's impatient with history. He doesn't want to go slowly. He doesn't want to let innate Chinese advantages go along. He sees these problems that we've mentioned that China has, and he knows or thinks that he must act quickly to cement China's relative advantage while he can. And so this means that the period of maximum danger is over Taiwan and is between now and about 2030. If she waits until after 2030, the West will have an alliance structure in place in Asia deeply unfavorable to Chinese interests, and it's unlikely that there'll be a war then. So the period of maximum danger is absolutely now. But Xi has made it clear to everyone, former doves, former hawks in the West, that he is a different breed of cat entirely from Deng Xiaoping, and that he's not going to wait, but he's going to be aggressive, expansionistic, unilateral, militarist. Let's just look at what he's done over the last couple years. He's attacked the Indians along the border of actual control, the line of actual control, which is sat there between the two, their unmarked border, one of the most dangerous borders in the world. And in the high Himalaya, they have literally, like some John le Carré novel, thrown people off of 10,000-foot cliffs, and the Chinese have still stolen about 150 kilometers of land. But that is hardly worth it when you consider that this has thrown India geostrategically into the arms of a waiting United States. So India is now gone from a neutralist country to a pro-American ally, and it's because of Chinese bullying. At the same time, everybody can look at what China does internally. It is, and again, the kind word for this is oppression. The nasty word is genocide against the Uyghurs in western Xinjiang province, where they are being oppressed and, and if not eradicated, subjugated by the Han Chinese nationalism of which Xi is a proponent in Xinjiang province. At the same time in the last year, you've seen the democracy movement in Hong Kong, the students utterly wiped out by Xi. There goes the idea for Taiwan of one country, two systems. We now have Hong Kong as just another oppressed Chinese city. At the same time, Xi has ignored the International Court of Arbitration's ruling that the South China Sea is not a Chinese lake, 
and has ignored this ruling and said, in effect, to the Europeans, come and enforce your ruling, which you can't as you don't have a navy, and has picked a fight with literally everyone while it militarizes reefs and man-made atolls in the South China Sea to try to make it a Chinese lake and get out from under that first island chain constraint we've talked about before. It picks a fight every other week with Taiwan by overflying Taiwan and telling it one way or the other, we're going to reannex you by 2050, if not sooner. And this is repeated with depressing monotony in the Chinese press, which is increasingly hysterical and jingoistic. At the same time, the Chinese have picked a fight with Japan over the East China Sea and with Australia for having the nerve to say, let's have an international conference about how COVID started in the first place. For all these many data points, you come to the same conclusion. Xi is an expansionistic, revolutionary superpower determined to supplant the established order in the Indo-Pacific. It's a state of being. The United States is the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific. China wants to be the dominant power in the Indo-Pacific. And something's got to give. So this comes out of the death of globalization and the rise of great power politics. In this environment, there has to be a rise of great power politics. Has to be. And globalization is not the only game in town. None of this is ultimately about economic rationality. Instead, it is about great power politics in Asia. So there's that. And then the second major data point in prediction we've made is the rise of endemic inflation. Beyond the obvious mismatch between supply and demand that would come out of a pent-up demand scene after COVID, which is true, that's transitory, there are two longer-term problems that come out of this rise of great power politics. Because of the death of this one globalized supply chain, there are now going to be myriad supply chains. There are going to be regional chains. There's going to be the global one as well. There's going to be onshoring. There's going to be hedging. There's going to be a lack of economic rationality, and this will result in higher endemic prices, a price we are prepared to pay to get out from under having China make everything. But it will lead to higher inflation, and it will force central banks to ultimately raise interest rates. And they've been utterly asleep at the switch about this, utterly in a coma analytically, because they've been given the greatest gift they could by Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan, 40 years of no inflation. That's over, and that's a result of the death of globalization and the rise of great power politics. And then there's, of course, the West, particularly Democratic countries, particularly the Biden administration, throwing gasoline on a roaring fire. In the uncertainty of COVID, they primed the pump, over-egged the pump, and in over-egging the cake, we see the result, which is 15%, as Larry Summers said, increase in spending in terms of GDP of an economy that's only 1% or 2% below former peak processing. And as a result, you're going to get inflation. So all the predictions that we've made, the rise of the Sino-American Cold War, the rise of endemic inflation, these two fundamental predictions we're making, if you take a step back and look at things historically, come about because of the death of globalization, this 30-year system that we operated in beautifully, and the rise of great power politics. They both explain what's happening and buttress these predictions that we've made. And this is the great advantage of having a historical view of the world. You can take a step back and actually look at what the painting is about. And on that note, thank you very much for listening all year to these podcasts. And thank you for being part of our Substack community, which is booming. 
And we couldn't be more thrilled about this. This is our Christmas gift, and thank you for it. I've loved that you've taken time to involve us in your lives. For those of you who haven't subscribed, and many, many of you have, for those of you who haven't, please do subscribe now. We greatly appreciate it. And for those of you who have subscribed, please think at this Christmas time about giving. If you think in this year we've been worth half a Starbucks a month to you in terms of the information we're giving you, just half a Starbucks a month, please at this Christmas time, do give the $70 um, that a year that we're asking or $7 a month, $70 a year or $7 a month. At Christmas, please do, if you think we're worth it, give us this gift because we're devoting more and more and more of our resources, I say with great joy, to doing Substack where there are no filters between us, no editors, no censorship, no fake news, just me talking to you and us interacting. And that is everything. And that free speech in this, in, in this very fraught era is the gift of Substack. And for that, I am endlessly grateful. And on that note... I wish you a merry, merry Christmas, happy holidays, and a wonderful festive season, and on to the new year. Have a great time, guys, and see you soon. Bye.